Welcome to episode 18 of Mike's Notes. Today, six lessons from the 1919 Chicago White Sox. Edward Seacott, Joseph Jefferson Jackson, Arnold Gandil, Charles Risberg, Oscar Felch, Claude Williams, and George Weaver are hereby accused of conspiracy to commit a confidence game. We're going to see the clock. Baseball, 1919. There were no free agents, no million-dollar salaries, but there was a team no one could beat. The true story of the team they call the Black Sox and the scandal that broke the heart of a nation. That clip was from the movie adaptation of the book Eight Men Out, which is what our notes will be based on today. The 1919 World Series was played between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds, and it's famous because there were eight players of the White Sox that were accused of throwing the series. That is, they took money ahead of time, and they made errors, and they didn't play their best, and the Reds ultimately won. And this White Sox team has been nicknamed the Black Sox because of the disgrace they brought to Major League Baseball and all of the hoopla around it. And what I found most interesting about the book Eight Men Out by Elliot Asinoff was how many lessons are applicable today that were true almost 100 years ago. There were six things that I learned from the story of the Chicago Black Sox. One. Baseball in the early part of the 20th century was really more than a game. It embodied the national spirit. It was a magnification of the national psyche. Asanoff writes in the book, quote, America... America expected higher morals from ballplayers than they expected from role models, end quote. There were a lot of people that were involved in the 1919 World Series scandal, but it was the baseball players who suffered the most. And part of the reason for that is because people expected the ballplayers to be more moral. They expected them to be more true than the businessmen or the politicians or the gamblers that were involved. There was also an attitude toward baseball that was more welcome and opening. City officials made it so visitors to Cincinnati and Chicago, who couldn't find a hotel, were allowed to sleep in the public parks. That's how open and welcoming the times were to baseball and to baseball fans. It was also more than a game to the players as well. Asanoff wrote, quote, The center of their lives was talent on spiked shoes. Without the demonstration of this, they were nothing. End quote. The major scandal was that they threw the games in the World Series, but they ultimately weren't convicted of that. And we'll get to that in a minute. But they were banned from baseball. And to many players, this was the bigger loss. In the courtroom, they were dour and quiet, and they didn't really know much of what was going on. They were well over their heads. But when they tried to reapply to baseball, they were confident and they thought they could do it. 
And that was the bigger letdown for them because they thought and they hoped and they expected that they would be reinstated, but they weren't. This was the only thing that many of these players knew how to do or were able to do. Those that failed to get back into baseball took a lot of menial jobs. Some of them worked in factories. Some of them ran a farm. It wasn't like these players had a lot of option. Baseball was how they defined themselves as who they were. And that can sometimes be a dangerous situation. Seth Godin says that after he sold his company, he was in a little bit of a funk because he had defined himself as the person who has created this company. So whether it's a sport on the national stage or the sport in a personal life, things are bigger than their story. There's uh, a bigger component. There's an, there's an unspoken value and weight to something, and we should be wary of that. Two. Home field advantage is really important in this story. And this is something that we've talked about in some of the other episodes of this podcast. It goes by other names, one of which is called the Fabian strategy, which is the ability to wait until conditions are good or great or perfect and only then act. If you can delay until there's a really good time to act, your outcomes will often be a lot better. We've seen this in a number of domains. Napoleon Bonaparte would wait to fight until conditions were right, and his three largest losses in Russia, Spain, and at Waterloo was an example of when he pushed forward and he didn't wait until conditions were good. That is, he acted when he didn't have home field advantage. Warren Buffett recently addressed this in the domain of business when he said, quote, We don't look at something like that, that is Amazon.com, and try to beat them at their own game. They're better than we are at that, and we aren't going to try to out-Bezos Bezos, end quote. So Buffett here realizes that his home field advantage is not where Amazon plays. That's their home field advantage. For him, he needs to focus on another area. In the story of the 1919 White Sox, this played out in a number of ways, one of which was Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was an illiterate. He wasn't necessarily the smartest guy. He couldn't read. He didn't have much schooling, but he could really play baseball. In fact, he relied on his wife to read the contracts that he signed. And prior to the 1919 season, he signed one without his wife reading it, and that would come back to bite him. But he played on a visitor's field. That is, Jackson didn't have home field advantage when he signed that contract. Also, when it came time for the legal proceedings to begin, Jackson spoke to the prosecutor without his own lawyer available. And there again, he was playing at a disadvantage. He didn't have the home field advantage. On the opposite end of this, we have the gamblers that that are involved. And the gamblers had a distinct home field advantage. They were used to betting on sporting events. They were used to paying people off. They knew the lay of the land. And ultimately, not many gamblers got in trouble. They were able to string the players along with promises of money, but not actually paying them much money because they knew that the players were already complicit in it. They couldn't turn their back. They didn't have the option. And so they understood the conditions of the battle better than the players. Another person who had home field advantage was Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the new baseball commissioner. He was given a lot of authority by the owners after this scandal. And so anything in the domain of baseball was his home field advantage 
So when Jackson and Buck Weaver and some of the other players tried to get reinstated, they were playing on his turf again. They were another they were disadvantaged again because they weren't in a domain where they had any power. Having home field advantage can be really good because it allows us to employ more of the Fabian strategy. It allows us to choose to act when conditions are better rather than being forced to act when conditions aren't. Three. Another interesting point from the story of the 1919 Black Sox was how the domino effect played out. That is, when the first domino in one line was nudged over, it led to a host of unexpected consequences. The first was that while the scandal was rumored and known among the ballplayers and heavily intuited by the reporters, there was no formal action until 1920. And even then, it only began with an investigation of the Chicago Cubs that got the ball rolling. Here's a clip from the 2016 Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting where Warren Buffett addresses a contemporary version of this. One thing you find, might find kind of interesting, uh, Nebraska's not done much with wind power, and th- well, maybe three miles from, two miles from where we're sitting, right across the river, people are buying their electricity cheaper in Council Bluffs right across the river than they are in Omaha. And yet Omaha, uh, Nebraska's entirely a public power state. So there's no stockholders who have to have any earnings. Uh, the bonds are issued on a tax-exempt basis, and yet electricity is considerably cheaper right across the river. And, you know, the wind blowing doesn't just start at the Missouri River. I mean, it comes, comes across Nebraska, and that wind could be captured. Uh, and uh, so far, it, it, really, it, it really hasn't. And the, the real irony is that because our electricity is so much cheaper, in Iowa, uh, you have these massive server farms of people like Google. I mean, it's become a tech haven for these uh, operations that just gobble up electricity. And Iowa has gotten plant after plant after plant and job after job after job uh, and increased property tax. I mean, gotten more property tax revenues. And that's being done. Buffett points out that because the way a state has chosen to govern how it gets electricity, thing A happened, and thing A led to B, and B led to C, and so on. And eventually it led to higher property taxes in one state versus another because of where the initial domino was tipped, where, the, where everything started to fall down or build up, or whatever sort of analogy you choose. And I saw this too in Phil Knight's recent book, Shoe Dog. And Knight points out that When he was cut from the baseball team, he didn't know what to do. He says he sat in his room for two weeks feeling sorry for himself. And then his mom said, hey, you're fast. Why don't you go out for track? And that led to Knight running track in high school and then college. And then Phil Knight eventually started the shoe company, Nike. So domino effects can have long chain consequences. Little things at the start can lead to big things down the line. And that was certainly true of the baseball scandal. If the Chicago Cub player 
hadn't been investigated in 1920, it's there's a chance that the Chicago White Sox players wouldn't have been investigated either. That this whole chain of events about being banned from baseball and having careers ended never would have happened. They would have been swept under the rug like some other baseball scandals. So domino effects are another thing I learned from 8 Men Out. 4. In strengths, there are weaknesses, and in weaknesses, there are strengths. This idea really crystallized when I was reading Clayton Christensen's series of books about disruption theory. And Christensen points out that as a company gets bigger and more successful, they're more likely to disruption from the low end by another company. And he's found this has happened in a number of domains such as technology domains like computer chip manufacturers and manufacturers of backhoes and a host of other places. And this idea that weaknesses are in strengths and strengths are in weaknesses is apparent in the story of the 1919 White Sox as well. What surprised me the most about this story was how uncoordinated all of it was. There was one player, Chick Gendow, who organized the fix, but he didn't give it all that much thought. He asked for $100,000, but he didn't know how it was going to be divided among the players, who he was going to have to pay more to, who he was going to have to pay less. He didn't even necessarily know what he was going to do with his own money. When the players met, they kind of agreed to the fix, but they didn't have any plans for it. They didn't decide to throw uh, certain games and not throw other games. They didn't decide to... uh, have one person do something and another person not. There was a lot of ambiguity among the players. They were sort of like the same patrons at a restaurant. They were there and they were together and they were helping support this restaurant, but there wasn't a coordinated effort necessarily to all go there at the same time. It was really disorganized. And this was a weakness in that the players ended up not getting quite as much money as they thought they would. They were strung out by some of the gamblers involved. They were underpaid. There was a lot of problems that came from this disorganization, this weakness. But this weakness also proved to be a strength. After the players had been arraigned and a grand jury was presented the case, the judge ordered that only one of the specific charges would be what the players were judged on. That is, the prosecution's case rested on the question of was there a coordinated effort to defraud people? And here, the weakness turned into a strength. Because the players had only met a few times, and because there was no evidence of very specific things to throw the games, and because there was no evidence of specific people who won a lot of money or lost a lot of money, the case kind of fell apart. The jury ended up coming back with a not guilty verdict. So the disorganization of the players actually proved to be a strength of theirs in the trial. And a lot of things are like that. If we're good in one area, there's always another area that we can't be good in. So whatever your weaknesses are, know that there's strengths in that. And whatever your strengths are, know there's weaknesses there. Five. We saw with an earlier point about having home field advantage the value of owning the turf that you're playing on. 
Another advantage that proved helpful to the different people involved is to have redundancy. That is, the people who came out smelling the best were ones that had a lot of redundancy in their situation. And redundancy can be thought of extra resources or space. Airlines and airplanes in the sky have spaces of redundancy. That is, they keep a lot of physical space between two airplanes. Money is an example of redundancy. In episode 81 of Exponent FM, Ben Thompson made the point that Microsoft is still around because they have a long runway to figure out the next wave of computing. They have a lot of money in the bank, which gives them redundancy. An economy can have redundancy too. For example, food. In the book, Civilization, Niall Ferguson wrote, quote, The Ming system had created a high-level equilibrium impressive outwardly but fragile inwardly. The countryside could sustain a remarkably large number of people, but on the basis of an essentially static social order that literally ceased to innovate. It was a kind of trap, and when the least little thing went wrong, the trap snapped shut. There were no external resources to draw on, end quote. The military has the expression two is one and one is none. And this idea of redundancy, of space, of backup systems, was also part of this book. The lead gambler in the fix, Arnold Rothstein, had redundancy in the layers between him and others. Even though he was the head gambler, he never gave anyone money, or he never gave a player money. He always had an intermediary do that. When lawyers started to ask questions, he went to them and had his lawyer present. So he had redundancy in the people between the prosecuting attorney, and himself. On the other side of this, the players failed to have redundancy. Buck Weaver wanted to play third base again after the fixed, but he wasn't able to because he was banned for life for just being in the room with the players. If Weaver had had physical space, that is, if he just hadn't been in the room, he may have been reinstated to baseball. Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis said, quote, Birds of a feather flock together. Men associating with gamblers and crooks could expect no leniency. So if Weaver had had redundancy, maybe he wouldn't have been banned from baseball. 6. Conditions matter. Nothing we do happens in a vacuum. And that was true of this time in baseball. Part of the reason that the players engaged in the fix is because they were unhappy with their playing situation. The Chicago White Sox, even though they were one of the more successful teams of that era, didn't play their players very much. Their owner would have bonuses for players if they reached some milestone. Say they won 30 games in a season as a pitcher. And he would sit them out if they were at 29 games. He also gave them a very low per diem per day that they could spend while on the road. So these conditions created the fertile ground for a fix. Part of the reason he was so cheap, though, was also because attendance dipped in 1917 and 1918 because of World War I. So, because there were fewer people at the games, there was less gate attendance, and so he paid them less because of that as well. So combine macroeconomic forces. Combine a tendency to be generally cheap. And you have this kit condition that the players are operating under, whereas if any one of those ingredients had changed, even a little bit, things may not have been the same. There was also the conditions of the fix. Many of the players went along ambivalently. Asanoff writes, quote, 
Happy Felch wasn't even a dishonest type. He would never steal a dime from you. He had merely been sucked into a plot for some easy money in a society that thrives on the worship of it. They had spoken of a half-hearted yes to the persuasive Gandal, and then let happen whatever might happen, end quote. Asanoff also writes that before Game 1 of the World Series, Shoeless Joe Jackson and starting pitcher Chakoti wondered why they were doing it. The money was good, but it wasn't great. It was about two years of their salary for what they were paid for throwing the World Series. They started down this path that they couldn't turn back from. Even as the series went on and the gamblers weren't showing up with promised money, the players admitted that they couldn't really turn back. They were already complicit in it. And so they were faced down this road where it was really hard to turn around. It was almost like going downhill, where once you start going downhill, to continue downhill is a lot easier than to turn around and go uphill. And that was the conditions that they were in. We own our personal decisions. Every decision we make is one that we ourselves are responsible for. But all of those decisions exist in an environment about economic forces and social forces and a whole host of other things. And we should understand that so we can get the full picture of how our decisions were made. When I finished this book, I was surprised at how empathetic I was toward the ballplayers. I didn't feel like the thing they did was right, but I also didn't really feel like it was wrong. It was in that gray area of life. And about the same time I finished the book, Mark Andreessen was on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he had this to say about reading history books. Yeah, and histories, I always find histories is where, like, I didn't really study history in college or anything, but I find history is this weird thing where the way that you're taught history, like in school, like in high school, you know, is like it's it's all these legendary people and they're kind of all, you know, Olympians, the founding fathers and these great generals or whatever. And it's like they've, you know, you got the names, you got the dates, and they did these amazing things. And they're kind of these great, like, and they feel like unrelatable. Like, and you, you, like, you couldn't possibly, like, to even, th- at least where I come from, even think that you could have ever ha- have anything in common with these people was just like a non, was not something that ever occurred to anybody. Like they're like the, you know, the pantheon of kind of the legendary people who have lived. Um, and I just found like the, bio- the really well-written biographies that get you inside the heads of what it was like to be Walt Disney at age 20, right? Or what, what it was like to be, you know, I don't know, Car- Carnegie or Mellon or Ford. Um, or what it was like to be, you know, for that matter, William Randolph Hearst. Or, you know, the, these you know, people we've all heard of, like the really good biographers are really good at getting inside the head of what, what it was like to be them then before they became <laughs> right before they became the people who ultimately made it into the, into the history books and much like charles ponzi who we looked at in episode 17 the truth is a lot more varied it's a lot more gray than maybe what we expected or what we thought we knew those are six things i learned about the 1919 world series and the chicago white Sox. Thanks for listening to episode 18 of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.